Patrick Jason Beavers was a 24-year-old from Jerome, Idaho. He had a diverse taste in music, ranging from opera to Weird Al Yankovic, and liked to lift weights. On the night of April 3, 1997, he was watching TV with his niece. Then she went to bed. When the family got up the next morning, Patrick was gone. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Have any of you ever gotten to participate in a time capsule? I have not, and I have to tell you, I kind of feel bad about that. If you don't know what that is, a graduating high school class or a club or a business will put a bunch of special items, pictures, a yearbook, sales receipts, letters, etc. in a box, lock it up, then bury it somewhere. Then 20 years, 30 years, 50 years later, they'll come back, dig it up, and take all of those items back out. It's a way to freeze a moment in time, with the people involved being reminded of memories they may have forgotten long ago. For them, it's like going back in time, hence the term time capsule. As I said, I've never gotten to participate in one, and it's too bad because it sounds kind of cool. I bring this up because in the disappearance of Patrick Beavers, not only did he go out into a snowstorm in freezing temperatures... We get the title Frozen in Time because his mother unknowingly created a kind of time capsule by preserving all of Patrick's possessions back in 1997, to the point they hadn't been touched or seen in almost two decades. Then, that capsule was opened by Patrick's sister. What it revealed were many things the family didn't know about Patrick. And it gave them, and maybe even us, a reason to believe that Patrick didn't die in that snowstorm at all. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Goodsight, charlieproject.org. Patrick lived in Jerome, Idaho with his mother and her husband. They had moved to the state from the San Francisco Bay Area the year before his disappearance. Patrick liked to spend most of his time alone reading, working out, and listening to music. He had no problem getting employment, but would often work for a while, save up money, then quit so he could spend more time with the hobbies that interested him. His mother has even called him a gifted underachiever with an extremely high IQ. The night Patrick disappeared, he seemingly walked out into the snowy night with a temperature well below freezing. He left behind his ID, wallet, and completed tax forms. He would be getting a refund that year. Patrick also left behind a letter that at first glance could be called a suicide note. However, given the circumstances in his life at the time, the note has taken on a new meaning since 1997. Though, for the record, Patrick's grandfather did commit suicide and it may run in the family. And Patrick may have been diagnosed with an incurable eye disease shortly before his disappearance, possibly leading him to depression. Yet, years after Patrick's disappearance, due to his mother pristinely saving everything of his from 1997, his family discovered Patrick had been hiding a few things from them. Because of this, their opinion has changed from Patrick committing suicide to Patrick being alive after that night, even possibly to this day. 
Patrick's case remains unsolved. The interview for this episode is with Patrick's sister, Sheila Van Zant Lewis. Unfound News. Volume 1 is out, and I appreciate everyone who's gone to Amazon.com so far and downloaded it. I can't thank you enough. I just want to remind you that reviews are important, so please, once you're done, and I know it takes some time, the book is 85,000 words, please go back to Amazon and give Volume 1 a great review. In addition, I'm working on Volume 2 right now, so I'd appreciate your personal feedback to make it even better than its predecessor. Thanks. And oh, printed editions of Volume 1 should be done within the next week. Next, I got to download the first round of Patreon contributions earlier this week. I cannot thank those supporters enough. And we had a few new people jump on board since the last episode of Unfound. Tammy and Jessica, thank you so much. This weekend, I'm going to be posting in the Unfound podcast discussion group the entire Patreon setup although some of the benefits and enjoyments aren't quite ready yet. However, it will give all of you an idea of where Unfound is going regarding merchandise and other promotions. And I just love giving you all a peek behind the curtain. And finally, let's not forget about the secret Stephen Kocher episode at unfoundpodcast.com. That show has gotten a lot of great reviews from those who have listened to it. Thank you. That time of 2009 into 2010 was an intriguing period for me, and I wanted to pass it along to all of you. If you haven't listened yet, what are you waiting for? Get over to the website, sign up, it's free, and download it. Then you can learn and enjoy what so many have already. And oh, did you catch Unfound Live on Facebook a couple days ago? How did you feel about the new time? Where you can find Unfound. On the website, unfoundpodcast.com. On Facebook, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group, which is private. And the Unfound Page, which is public. Please join it both. On Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. On Instagram, a lot of new followers on Instagram this past week, at Unfound Podcast. On Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Unfound Podcast. I also have a PayPal account if you can't figure Patreon out. The unfound email address is unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. But please don't hesitate to message me privately on Facebook Messenger as well. You can subscribe to Unfound at iTunes, Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Play, and a bunch of other places. You can also listen without downloading at TuneIn Radio. Still not on Spotify yet, which ticks me off. On Amazon, we talked about that already. And finally, please mention Unfound at Reddit, Web Sleuths, True Crime Podcasts, podcasts we listen to, and all other true crime websites and forums. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Patrick Beavers, Sheila Van Zant Lewis. Sheila, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Tell the listeners a little bit about Patrick uh, growing up with him. First of all, uh, are you his older sister or his younger sister? I am his only sister. His uh, only sister. Okay, only yeah. sister. Okay. And we, well, he has a half brother, and then we have a couple step stepbrother and stepsister, two stepbrothers and stepsister, excuse me, and then he has a half brother. 
Well, what was it like uh, growing up with him? Were you too close? Um, what interest did he have? Um, what do you remember about him uh, as a kid, you two being kids? What do I remember? I remember <laughs> I remember that he was a brat. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes, he was. Definitely a brat. Um, yeah, he had these big blue eyes, and he was really, really, really a good-looking child. And that's what everybody would comment on, how cute he was. He was just simply adorable. And it turned him into a little brat by the time he was three, for a while anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and we we had to always share birthdays. Our birthdays are two days apart, five years and two days. So on the 17th of October every year, my mom would buy cakes or make cakes and have half of it with ballerinas and half of it with cowboys and Indians. <laughs> so she just put two two birthdays into one day. How did you feel about that, being the older sister? Um, it was okay until I um, got to my teen years. And then um, him, you know, Doing little kid things around my friends was kind of embarrassing, but other than that, you know, it was okay. Um, didn't make much difference then. We just had really big parties. I, I suppose so. Uh, I suppose so. Uh, how did you two get along? Um, you said he was a little brat. Uh, what do you mean by that? Is this just regular brother and sister stuff, or more than that? Oh yeah, it was a more. Uh, well, it was regular brother and sister stuff. Cause like one time, when he was about two and a half. I told him to come give me a hug because he was so cute, and he walked up and bit me in the stomach. <laughs> did it leave a mark? Uh, really? Did it leave a mark? Yeah. It drew blood. It drew blood. But that was for no reason. But, of course, he was only two and a half, so, you know, you got to let that go. Yeah. Um, he was also ADHD. So when he got a little bit older, he had a bad tendency of, like, he'd watch a lot of cartoons, and when he sat in front of the TV, his legs would kick constantly. He could not sit still. Mm-hmm. I'm ADHD too, but he's more so than I ever thought to be. It's like the extreme scenario on it. And so you're, you said you're just about exactly five years older than he, he, he. And so when you were 10, he was five. When you were 12, he was seven. And uh, did, was he into any sports or any hobbies? You told me he had some uh, interesting music choices. Maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, he he was into reading. He was always into reading. Um, when he was about 11, he wasn't really into sports too much. When he was about 11, I think it was, um, he had his appendix rupture, but they thought it was the flu because his appendix were in the wrong spot. They were actually located between his spinal cord and his bowels instead of in, down his lower abdomen. So they had to do exploratory surgery in order to find him, and they ruptured. Um, after that, he kind of became a little bit antisocial because he was in the hospital for two months, I believe. And oh my. when he, yeah, then when he got out of the hospital, um, I was no longer living in the house. By that time, um, I was off on my own, living on my own, um, and starting college, actually. Um, Do you think that those uh, two months changed him then a little bit? Did they change him? Yeah, they did. They changed him a lot. He went through some definite changes uh, because he was kind of weak and, you know, he almost died from it. He had drains in his stomach for a long time, and um, yeah, it changed him. He became a lot more antisocial. Spent more time reading, listening to music, opera, um, Mozart, Mozart, a lot of that. Um, watched a lot, of, a lot of cartoons, and his favorite movie was like Stella Thirteen, I think it was, or Seventeen, I think it's Thirteen, if I get it right. 
I know that movie. That, that's an old time movie. That's like a black and white movie from, I'm guessing, the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. yeah that was his favorite movie. Yes, it was. Um, he liked to read a lot, like I said. Um, he read a lot of Piers Anthony. Uh, i to think what else he read. Stephen King. Um, the one, Anne McCaffrey. Anne McCaffrey. Not familiar with her. Okay. Rob, Rob Coots was another one. I'm trying to think of anybody else he was reading at the time. Mm-hmm. He also was really into a lot of medieval stuff. Um, he worked out a lot. He has a weight bench inside of his room. He worked out all the time. And um, he read a lot. <laughs> he and liked you... Weird Al Yankovic. So he liked classical music and Weird Al Yankovic music. Yeah. That's quite, he... that's quite a taste. And it's a range of taste, Sheila. ACDC and um, the, a couple of the country ones, too. It was diverse, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And what did he do for school? Actually, um, he stopped going to school, junior high school. He um, was really hyperactive, and he had a he had a high IQ. I think it was it was over one forty eight. They said they te- would have tested low because of the ADD, ADHD at the time. But um, he had a really high IQ, and he had trouble adapting to the changing schedules. I did too when I was in high school. Um, it was just too disruptive, you know, just going from class to class. So um, he had a lot of trouble with that, and he went into a special special program that where they just did the classes all at once. But I don't think he ever went to high school. Um, he was more at home schooling at that time because they had the independent studies thing. So I don't recall, but he could have went. I may be wrong. I was already living on my own by then and had my own family. So I mm-hmm. really couldn't say if he was at high school or not. Um, my last recollection was junior high. And I'm having trouble on that. Did he have many friends? No. He had hardly no friends from the time he had that surgery. I only remember him having one girlfriend ever in his entire life. And that's when he worked at um, TVNY when he was about 18 years old. And they were together for maybe close to a year, I think. And I can't even remember her name, but um, it was in the Bay Area. And uh, they ended up splitting up, and he took that pretty hard. Um, his best friend would have been our stepbrother, Mike, who has since passed away. Uh, they were pretty close for quite a while. And uh, Mike moved back to after Patrick disappeared. He wasn't living up here in Idaho when Patrick disappeared. He moved up here after Patrick disappeared. And then he ended up going back to, I think it was Texas. And he died when he was down there. So he spent a lot of time by himself. You're telling me he read and he was just into his music. He was into his weightlifting. And that kind of continued the whole way, uh, Tim being an adult. But you did say that he did have some different jobs. You told me he worked at, what did you say, TGI Friday. Um, What other jobs did he have? I mean, if. He could hold down a job. He must have been at least a little bit outgoing. Um, he worked. He worked um, at Seven Eleven in Milpitas, California. He worked there at Park Victoria store. He was there for years and years. So it was um, my mom and our stepdad. Um, they all worked there. They didn't. I'm not sure if one of them was a manager or not. But he really liked working there. And then when they moved to Idaho, he worked for Cactus Peace Casino in Jackpot, Nevada. And uh, was one of those collar people, I guess, and for the games and stuff for 
I can't remember what game it was. Um, someone had dropped money on you or something, and you go try and grab the money or something. I can't recall what it was he did exactly because I never went to the casinos back then. Um, what other jobs do you have? That's pretty much all the jobs he ever had. He had them all long term. You know, other than that, I don't recall mm-hmm. except for odd jobs, you know, helping people out in their yards or something, but that was few and far between too. Um, we should establish that he did not grow up in Jerome, Idaho. He, you were actually started in the Bay Area, and then at some point uh, you all moved to Idaho, right? Yes. Um, actually, Patrick was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we moved to California when he was three. I would have been nine, so he would have been four, excuse me. And then we moved to – I moved to Idaho first with my husband and kids, and they, my mom and Patrick and – his stepdad, my mom's husband, followed after um, probably about a year and a half, two years after I moved up here. And then it was shortly after that, probably within the first year that he disappeared. So uh, around a year sometime in there after Patrick Gunn uh, moved to Idaho is when he disappeared. Yes. Okay. How did, now that he's an adult... Um, like you said, he doesn't have a lot of friends. There was something else, though, maybe we should get to this. There was something else that might have uh, really shaped him besides this appendix issue. Is that he had been shot with a BB as a kid? Oh, yeah. well, what's that? What's, what story is that, that that maybe had an effect on him as a child? I can't remember if he was – he was, must have been elementary school. But he was walking home from school one day, and he felt something hit his throat. He couldn't talk or – he was having trouble breathing. He just came in gasping for breath. And when the paramedics came, they determined that he'd been shot in the throat with a BB, and they don't even know where it came from, um, or if it was intentional, or if it was accidental, or what had happened. But um, I remember, I thought they did, did a tracheotomy, but I'm not sure. Like I said, I was not living in the house at the time. Um, and he had to go into the hospital and have the BB pulled out. I remember that. Because it lodged right by his esophagus. Boy, a little higher, that really could have done some real damage, maybe to his eye or something. Yeah, definitely. And no, and they never figured out who did that, to your knowledge? No. No, they never did. They just figured it was somebody shooting in their yard or something, a ricochet or something, because they never found anybody around there in the area. And he never said where he was at walking at when he got, when he got hit with it, so... I'm not even sure where he was at when he was walking up from school, what street or anything. What was he like as an adult socially, even within his family? When he was living at home, he was with, uh, he lived with uh, your mother and his stepfather. What kind of interaction did he have with them? And of course, he was working too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what their interactions were on the normal. Um, it seemed to be okay. They all got along. They rode, they when they worked, um, they all worked at the same for the same casino, so they rode to work together, um, or took the bus together, or however they got to work together. Uh, they got along pretty well, except for uh, Patrick had quit working. I think shortly before that. I'm not sure how long before that, because he liked to just stockpile as many, and then he quit working for a while. He got you know, and then um, he'd go back to the same job or find something else. And I think he was looking for something else at the time. But um, yeah, they got along pretty well except for him not doing his dishes once in a while. <laughs> okay, the regular stuff. But um, he didn't know his biological father, though, that well, did he? He'd only seen him once since he was 11 years old. 
I mean, one since he was three, and that's when he was 11 and then in the hospital. That's the only time he ever saw his dad. And, that, and this is, could be an issue regarding his disappearance, but to your knowledge, when you would talk to Patrick, was that something that it was a that was a big point in his life, that he wanted to find him? You know, Did he ever mention that? One time ever, and that was right, like maybe two weeks before he disappeared, he told me and my office manager that um, he wanted to go find his dad. And I told you don't know where he is, so that's kind of not a good idea if you don't know where to look for him. And um, we kind of just left it at that. And that's the same day he actually told us that day that he'd been up on the bridge like the night before, walking from Twin. He used to walk a lot all the way from Jerome to the other side of Twin Falls, which is uh, about 20 miles or so. Um, mm. And he'd walk back all the way there and all the way back, and he walked really fast. He said he was walking across the bridge late at night, and he got stopped by an officer making sure he wasn't a jumper. I don't know if that's true or not, or if he was just saying that or what the whole situation was. But um, it didn't, you know, it didn't appear to be true. But then again, you know, you never know. Was that a surprise to you that just out of nowhere that he that he mentioned his father? I mean, did anybody in your family know where his dad was? Did you know? Anybody know? No, nobody knew. Nobody knew. Um, mm-hmm. My mom kind of kept him away, kept us away from him because they had some issues, and it kind of spilled down, you know, as far as us having any contact with him over the years. But, um, no, nobody knew where he was at that point. Okay. As a matter of fact, when Patrick went missing, I had to try and contact him to let him know that he was missing. And I dialed an old phone number, the one that I'd memorized when I was, like, a little kid. And it happened to be um, the same business. It was a business phone number that we used to own down there, Averential Travel. And the lady that answered the phone, he no longer owned the business, but she was able to put me in touch with him. So she knew how to get a hold of him, and that's how I got a hold of him to let him know that um, Patrick was missing. Were you a little surprised, being that that never was a talk, but he just kind of mentioned that out of the blue one day? Yeah, I was a little surprised. Um, maybe I should maybe I should ask you this: How often did you talk to him or see him uh, as an adult? Oh, I talked to him like. He'd show up at my house every once in a while just randomly and cook breakfast for everybody. Um, occasionally went by my mom's when I wasn't working. The kids went over there quite a bit. So, you know, minimum of once a week, usually more. In those months leading up to his disappearance, how would you say that Patrick was doing, being that you got to see him about once a week? Um, he seemed like he was a little bit depressed, a little bit of a sh- culture shock, to say the least. Um, he didn't know how to drive, so... In this area, there's no buses. You don't have a county transit. You can't jump on the bus and go someplace. You know, if you want to get somewhere, you have to walk, have a car, or ride a bike. And in the wintertime, it's kind of hard to ride a bike or on a horse, <laughs> to say the least. But, yeah, he seemed a little bit depressed. Um, like, more like a, like he was wanting to get out on his own, but he wasn't quite sure how to do it, you know. Um, he had a lot of stresses. Mom always said that he was supposed to be the one that would take care of her when she was old because my our mother's blind and um that was kind of putting a lot of pressure on him i know you know having to worry about supporting himself and then potentially having to support his mom one day um so yeah he was a little depressed did he ever talk about maybe going back to california being that that's where he grew up and you know he grew up in an area where if you didn't drive there was public transportation and there were places to walk to instead of jerome idaho 
Uh, no, he never talked about going back to California. I don't think he had a lot of good memories, just simply because of the fact he didn't have a lot of friends there. He did know people. He had acquaintances that he met in the store, but no friends. There wasn't anybody that came over and hung out with him or that he went and did things with. You know, um, he just didn't have friends. He was socially awkward. Um, he'd tell a joke and it'd fall flat. Um, his intelligence got the better of him. A lot of times people didn't understand what he was talking about. Just once again, the, the high IQ uh, that he had, it just might have gone over some people's heads, which I, I, I can understand. Uh, I just want to cover one more issue that might have something to do with his disappearance, and then we'll get into uh, that day and, and that night and, and what happened. Uh, you mentioned that your mother uh, was blind, although she wasn't born blind. She progressively became blind because of a condition. And you believe that um, that Patrick also had some sort of eye issue as well. Maybe you can explain to the listeners uh, this issue that he had with his eyes. Okay. Well, the, the disease is that my mother has is retinitis pigmentosa. And it's hereditary. It runs in families. And she carries both the dominant and recessive gene. The recessive gene, I, I believe you get it when you're like in your 50s or 60s. You can get it. Um, and when with dominant, you're usually legally blind by the time you're a teenager, if not younger. Um, I had gone to see the eye doctor about getting glasses shortly after Patrick disappeared, and the eye doctor happened to mention to me that he saw the information on my brother on the news and seen the flyers, and that he'd just seen my brother. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how was he doing? He goes, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that he's starting to develop that disease your mom has. And I told him to go see an ophthalmologist. Whether he did or not, I don't know. Um, I don't have any record of this. You know, this was kind of told to me off the record um, because my brother was missing, so he did mention it. It could have added to depression. You know, if that was the case, if he was told he might have it, whether he did or not, you know, is another story. Could have been another story. You mentioned that, that Patrick had some stresses in his life already, and this could have been just one more thing. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And he maybe did have some eye issues already with sense sensitivity to light or fluorescent light. I remember in our prior conversation, you told me something that he had to wear sunglasses inside. You know, this might be something important when we get to uh, his disappearance and maybe trying to find him. Uh, what what was that? Um, he wore dark wrap, wrap around sunglasses because the retinitis pigmentosis progress progresses because of bright sunlight or fluorescent lighting. UV lighting will cause it to um, rapidly accelerate the disease if you have it. So he he started wearing dark sunglasses when he was a teenager because he had sensitivity to light and fluorescent lights. And he worked, at, of course, at the 7-Eleven and the casino where they have a lot of those, so he would wear them inside for those lights as well. Um, my mom did as well when I was growing up. Uh, she wore the dark glasses inside and out. But, um, yeah, and- and I think that maybe, although I don't know how common that particular eye disease is, I think we've all, as adults, maybe seen somebody who's like that. Maybe not somebody maybe that we knew, but maybe we're just out somewhere and we see somebody who's wearing those glasses and it's already dark out, or especially if even it's a younger person, it kind of really sticks out. And it may be that Patrick had some sort of degenerative eye condition as well, just like your mother did. So we have to keep that in mind as we continue this. Um, 
getting to the time around his disappearance, you had mentioned uh, him walking. He liked to walk places, but then there was this one night, and there's this bridge, like about five miles from where he lived, that he was stopped by a cop because the cop thought he was jumping off this bridge. This is a bridge that's well-known in the area for bungee jumping or something. What's the name of that bridge, by the way? The Perrine Bridge, P-E-R-R-I-N-E. And it's um, where Evil Knievel jumped the Snake River Canyon. It's right there. That's where it's located at. And it's actually about eight miles from Jerome. So it's a little bit further, maybe 10 from his, where the house where they lived. Oh, 10 miles? Okay. 10 miles? Yeah. And you had said, though, that he had said that uh, he had even told you that the cop stopped him. But for some reason, like you just said earlier, you didn't believe that story. Why is that? Any particular um, re reason? Because he used to make things up sometimes, <laughs> just for attention. <laughs> just little stories, he'd make things up. Um, I can't think of anything that he made up right off the top of my head, but he just used to make up things. You know, like this happened and it really didn't happen, or this situation happened and it really didn't happen, or well, what if this situation happened? And he'd just kind of elaborate on it from there, and he was a really good storyteller in that aspect, but a bad joke teller. All right, so we're not sure if this... And we, you, the listeners should know that you've actually looked into this after he disappeared, and you could find no cop that actually stopped him on the bridge that night, could you? I couldn't. No, I did not no. find one. Okay. So we come to the day uh, that he disappeared. What do you know about that day and what went on that night? Uh, and we'll go, we'll go from there. What do you know? Um, well, all I know is what I was told. Um, my daughter was staying the night over with her grandparents that night, and it was right after April 1st. I also said that um, the month of April is kind of significant in our household, um, especially April 1st. My, my father, which is not Patrick's father, my father committed suicide on April 1st, um, 1969. And uh, my mom has always kept away from any April Fool's jokes or anything else because she thought it wasn't a suicide, that it was an April Fool's joke because he was a prankster that went bad. So that's always been something that's always been at the top of everybody's minds on April 1st of that year because my mom always brought it up. Now, Patrick disappeared on April 3rd or the 4th, Depends on whether he left before midnight, but we think it was after midnight. Um, my daughter was staying the night there. I guess he had a disagreement earlier that evening with um, Merle, nothing big, nothing out of the ordinary about how rent was due and he needed to get them some money. So it wasn't like a big disagreement, just, you know, you need to get us some money and, well, I'm not going to the bank right now kind of thing, um, and left at that. They were watching scary movies that night. My daughter went to bed, and... That's the last time she saw Patrick. The next morning they got up to go to the store in Twin, and my mom said, told my daughter to knock on the door and let them know that they were leaving, and she knocked on the door and nobody answered, so when they went in, they found a note, and that's about the extent of it. So they don't know when he left. It was sometime after midnight and sometime before 8 a.m. So your daughter is there. How old is she, by the way, at this, at this time? Good question. Let's see. She would have been... About 13, 14, maybe? Maybe not that old. Let me think. She was born in 84, so she would have been 13. Okay, so she's 13 years old. They're staying up watching uh, movies, scary movies. She decides to go to bed. Patrick decides he's going to stay up. Uh, she goes to bed. When they all get up, he's gone. And then there's this note. Uh, what did the, the note say? Um, 
it said, my will, mom gets everything, no blame except my own. Um, and it was signed by him. And that's about it. And that was a handwritten note or was it typed out? It was a handwritten note. Handwritten note. And what did they do when they saw this note? I mean, I, I suppose you could look at that note a couple different ways, but I, I think the, the knee-jerk reaction would be that Patrick might have wanted to commit suicide. But so what did everybody do in the house? My mom called me um, and told me that he was missing and he left a note. And I hung up the phone and well, I told her, I said, call the police and let them know because there was a lot of snow out that night and he didn't drive. So at least I didn't think he knew how to drive. I found out later that he did know how to drive, but he just didn't drive. Um, there was a lot of snow out that night. It was a couple feet, if I remember right. And so she called the police and reported him missing and leaving that note. So they listed him as missing and dangerous and started looking for him. And um, actually put it on the news. And then I did a flyer, and Mom started putting up flyers. And we looked everywhere we thought he might be, but we couldn't find him anywhere. And being that it snowed, uh, were there any footprints outside, anything unusual that you saw in the snow or they saw in the snow, anything like that? No, there were no footprints. So it snowed too much for there to be footprints. So we don't even know when he left, you know, during the night um, or if he got a ride from somebody, which I doubt because the street was pretty much snowed in that night, I believe, um, or where he went or anything else. We do know he went to the liquor store sometime in the evening before that because he bought a bottle of scotch. So, you know, we do have that much information. And so the search was conducted. Like you said, there's, even though it snowed, there's no footprints. So maybe he left before it really started snowing heavily. It would have been cold out. Um, you talked about this bridge and this river that's some miles away. Was that searched? Uh, how big was the search that went on? for him. Yeah, they searched the entire southern part of, of Jerome County, down to the canyon, inside the canyon. They had volunteers, over 100 volunteers, plus I believe there was a helicopter that was out searching, and um, I think they put a boat in, but it, they couldn't drag the river at that time because of, the water was too high to do anything of that nature. It was too fast. So that's the only thing that was not done. And they did not search north of Jerome. But usually when he walked, he walked south of Jerome anyways towards Twin Falls. So, um, yeah, that's about the extent of the searching that I know of. Was, was a search to the north of Jerome ever done after that? Not that I know of. I don't believe so. Except for just people out hunting and, you know, people looking in caves and stuff like that. Not a formal search was, was not done. The weather was too bad. It, it got to be pretty bad that year. And any idea what Patrick might have been wearing when he left that night? Have you ever been able to figure that out? Being that we nobody saw him leave, could anybody even guess what he was wearing? Um, well, I could take a guess. He would have been wearing blue jeans, a belt, a T-shirt, and then a regular shirt. Um, I think they were Hanes is what he usually preferred. And he would have been wearing hiking boots. Um, a, a black jacket is what I remember him having, a black one or a blue one. And... I can't remember what kind of gloves he had, but he had one of those face mask things, and he would have been carrying a pocket knife, and he had his wraparound glasses, of course. So going out in the snow like that, at least he'd have gloves, he had a mask, he had boots. 
maybe could survive in that weather, right? I don't know how cold it would be at the beginning of April in Idaho, but it sounds cold. But he could he could survive in that if he wanted to. I, well, possibly, yeah, for a short time anyway. Um, mm-hmm. It was pretty cold. And he would have long johns on, of course. You know, he, he's kind of a baby about the cold like I was. I am, I should say. So those were the clothes that you could guess, that, but we were never really able to prove what was in his wardrobe and what wasn't. And we're going we're gonna to get to that. That's an interesting part of, part of this story. We're going to get to that in, in a bit. Now, what, what else did you find in his room? Uh, did he leave anything behind that you think that he might have taken with him? He should have taken with him. His ID. He left it cut up, and I found it at the bottom of a trunk a couple weeks after he disappeared. And he also left his taxes um, for rapid refiling, you know, the e-filing, already ready to go, signed and everything. And um, he was getting a sizable income back for somebody his age, you know, um, return from his federal taxes, so he didn't owe anything. But he left him sitting there ready to file. So before he disappeared, I, we have to keep in mind this is the beginning of April. Taxes generally have to be done by April 15th. And he had already done his, I guess, for even though he wasn't working at the time for every whatever work he had done in the year prior, he had already taken care of that. Yeah, it was ready to go. So my mom went ahead and filed him for him. Um, and it was just for a direct deposit into his bank account. So, And he left his bank card behind, too, I believe. So you, okay. So even if he wanted to get money, he'd have a tough time doing that. You mentioned his ID; it was cut up. How did you manage uh, to find that in, in this trunk? Did it look like it was hidden, or that it was just deposited there? What do you remember about that? Twenty years later, um, it was just it was underneath a bunch of stuff in the bottom of his trunk. I'd taken everything out looking to see um, if because he had some rifles in his room that he didn't take, um, just to see what was in there. You know, if there's any notes, letters, anything like that. And it was underneath a bunch of clothes and stuff, I think, that I found his ID. Was it his uh, current ID or just to be as exact as we can be? Was it his current ID or was it like an older ID, maybe from like when he was a teenager or something? It was a current ID, but I can't remember whether it was a California ID or Idaho. I think it was an Idaho ID. It was in the driver's license, just an identification card. Well, that had to, I'm going to guess that had to worry you when you saw that. Yeah, I did. I did. But also, at the same time, he'd also talked about with my stepbrother, Michael, about um, going off and joining the Merchant Marines and assuming a new ad- identity. And that's something that he kind of um, told tall tales about, you know, kind of made stories up about, <laughs> assuming identities and pro- pulling out the perfect crime, things like that. Okay, and yes, we're, we're, we're going to talk about that, but... I want to get to this note, uh, something you told me about it. It does seem like uh, it could be read, as a, frankly, as a suicide note, but maybe not, depending on what Patrick's state of mind was at the time. But you told me he's a very smart guy. He was a reader, educated, uh, even though he was a somewhat private guy. But he had misspelled one of the words in, in that note. Which word did he misspell? Except, and he kind of separated it. I think he spelled it E X, and then like a space S E P T, like September abbreviation. Yes. Yeah, which was kind of odd because he knew how to spell except. Um, he wouldn't have misspelled it unless he did it deliberately. 
and I have no idea why he would do that. So did it look like his handwriting? To your, yeah. It did look like it is handwriting? Yes, mm -hmm. it does look like it's handwriting. It does. And you do you still have the note, or do the police have the note? Um, the police have the note, I believe. I just have a copy of it. And what do you – when you look at the note 20 years later, when you think about those words – how would you define them? What, what do you? Obviously, a lot of people are going to see that as a maybe a suicide note, maybe. But you kind of see that note a little differently, don't you? Um, at first, I thought he was a suicide because, of course, you know he kind of made those comments about the bridge and things like that. And I'd been meaning to go over and talk to him and see if he was depressed for some reason. I hadn't quite made it over. I was busy with them. Um, the law firm I was working for and um, taking care of kids and a husband and all the good stuff that goes with it. But um, in hindsight, kind of looking back, he he was kind of a mommy's boy, and my mom was really, um, how should I put it, she was very, uh, not controlling, but kind of like, well, you got to stay here and do this for me, you got to do that his whole life, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to take care of me, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do that. And at the same time, I could see him wanting to get out on his own and not knowing how to do it without upsetting my mother and having her... You know, going, well, no, you can't do that because you got to you know, do this when you get older and that kind of thing. So I could see him wanting to go out and assume a different identity at that point and make his own identity without the stresses of having a blind mother. So he, so even though he lived at home and he was somewhat to himself, there was a part of him that might have wanted to get out. He kind of maybe felt like he was anchored to his home because he felt this uh, loyalty to his mother. And, yeah, the responsibility, yes. Um, but he wanted to get on his own and didn't know how to do that other than maybe just having a clean break and just disappearing out of the house one day. That's a possibility. Yes, it is. It is a definite possibility. Um, that's why I've been looking at both unidentified and um, people that are, you know, not who they say they are. <laughs> to say, mm -hmm. I don't know how to quite put that one. People who have maybe left their lives and gotten new identifications, moved to other parts of the country and started new lives. I mean, it's fairly rare, but it does happen. Uh, yes, it does. And this is before the Internet, so um, it's even more doable then than it would be now. Uh, I th you may be right about that. So what happened? How did your mother... Uh, handle this? How did the rest of your family handle this at the time in 1997? Of course, the searches were done. Nothing was found. No sign of him was found. And uh, how did everybody handle it at the time? And we're going to talk about some things that happened more recently, but at the time, how did you all carry on after that? Well, let's see. Um, flyers were put up everywhere. Stayed glued to the news a lot. Um, they did find a body in Castleford a couple months after he disappeared. And the news went on, on the air and said that it was my brother. Okay, I happened to see this on the news, that they found my brother's body in Castleford without having a positive identification, and it turned out not to be him. And needless to say, now the news here does not do that. They do not say, well, it could be this person anymore, because they kind of caught an earful um, from myself as well as one of the attorneys at work that I worked for at the time, uh, because my mom was really depressed and really suicidal over, over the entire thing. She was just a wreck. 
And if she would have heard that at work or something before, you know, I had a chance to talk to her and say, hey, wait a minute, the shoes didn't match or, you know, and they're going up to go, you know, look at, view the body, the officers from Jerome up in Boise and rule them out. That could have been, had a very bad impact and it was let, the local news was told that that could have been a very bad thing and that they would have been liable for it for um, releasing something, inaccurate information prematurely especially under the circumstances. So I noticed that after that, they never did that again. Um, how did your family, what did your family do? Uh, of course, the flyers, how did you emotionally handle it at the time? Oh, let's see. Um, I stopped celebrating holidays after that for some reason. Um, I didn't realize it for a good 15 years that I'd actually done that. Um, my mom, she still buys Christmas presents every year and stacks them up in the closet for him. She spent every um, <clears throat> vacation for, I think, 18 years doing nothing but putting out flyers in different areas. Um, I got her a, a book that has all the sheriff's offices and um, police departments in the United States listed in it, and she started one by one sending out a flyer to each and every individual sheriff's office in the United States until they were all done. And that took quite a bit of postage, to say the least, and a lot, a lot of time. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, like I said, it was before the internet, so um, it wasn't for quite a few years after the internet came out that I even thought found a way to even post it on there without, you know, knowing how to get it out there. So. Yeah, when she started doing this, I'm not sure how many of these places would have had email and everything. Yeah, you'd have to do it the old-fashioned way, right through the mail. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's how we did it. <laughs> and how did you handle it, Sheila? finding out that your your brother you know disappeared whether it was something maybe a suicide or maybe just leaving his life how did you handle it for a while like you I said I haven't handled it yet no <laughs> honestly I still haven't it hasn't quite assimilated yet still after all this time I had to take charge of everything because my mom was not able to even function enough to think on how to even do anything as far as getting anything out there um, she, but we did get the flyers posted all over town. Um, my daughter, she actually had a few problems afterwards, so I won't go into details, but, um, yeah, she was really depressed over a lot of things that happened and it, um, it was just hard on the entire family, you know, um, holidays, birthdays, especially my mom's birthday is six days after Patrick's. And mine's two days before Patrick's, so we're all in the same month. Um, and maybe it's a little bit on the difficult side. Of course. Now, recently, within the last few years, though, your mother had kind of kept Patrick's room exactly the way it was when he disappeared in 1997, for the most part. And it's only been within the last few years that you've gone in there and kind of started going through it. Maybe I don't know how that was happened. Maybe she allowed you or maybe you just did it on your own. What can you tell the listeners uh, about that? It was like his room was kind of frozen in time there for a while. What did you find some things? You found some things in there were a little surprising to you. Yes, actually, um, I'll have to go back on that one. She um, kept his room the same until they bought a house because they were renting the place they lived in when they first moved here. 
And they eventually had to buy a place after Patrick disappeared, but they kept the same phone number. Um, and she boxed everything up. And nobody was allowed to touch it, ever, you know. And I kept asking her, I said, well, you know, I'm looking at all these unidentifieds. It would be helpful if I knew what size jeans he wore or what he could have been wearing, you know, what size shoes he had. Well, the thing she gave me at first, um, she said, well, I think this is Patrick, so you could look at this stuff and just a limited amount of stuff. turned out not to even be his because she didn't want his stuff touched. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time looking at the wrong size shoes until um, just recently when she let me go in and look at look through everything and get his um, actual clothing sizes and shoe sizes. And at that time, I found that he had actually bought, he had a whole new wardrobe that he bought and didn't take with him. I don't know if he bought one or two, but it was a lot of Marvel stuff, mail order stuff that he'd ordered in, like brand new jackets. Um, he had a pair of brand new boots, and then his old, old boots were there, so I don't know if he had an intermediary pair that he might have been wearing. Um, he had brand new clothes in there that had brand new toothbrushes, things like that. It was just kind of really strange because he had all this new stuff, like a tent from Marlboro and um, a lot of camping equipment and stuff like that that I found packed into this stuff that I couldn't believe she – well, she's blind, but she's the one who packed it up. But she failed to mention that there was anything like that, you know, and where, where where had this stuff been sitting uh, all this time? In boxes in a spare room at our new house. At the new house. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So he had this 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 like new wardrobe that you didn't know about, and I'm guessing that your mother didn't know about it either. A lot of new clothes, and he had this camping gear. Would you, to your knowledge, was Patrick ever interested in camping or anything like that? Patrick was very into the outdoors. Anything outdoors he'd like to go to. Hiking, camping, anything like that. Yes, he was. Did this did this camping equipment look like it had ever been used? No. It had not. Except for the canteen. Canteen looked like it had been used. Possibly. I can't say for sure. Uh. I still have the canteen. And you also find probably the most interesting um, fact that jumped out to me when we first talked. You found a receipt from a car parts store. What can you tell the listeners about that? Well, it wasn't a receipt. It was um, I was trying to make sure that the note was written by him. So I asked if it was anything else that had his writing on it. And she let me go through some papers that she had of his. And I found his check register from his checking account to use for comparing the handwriting if it looked like it was the same handwriting. And um, there was an entry shortly before he disappeared where he bought, it's been $104, I think it was, I can't remember off the top of my head, at an auto parts store. Well, when I asked um, Merle, my mom's husband, if he had Patrick pick up any auto parts for him, he said no. Michael was living in another state. I didn't have him pick up any car parts for me. To the best of my knowledge, until that time, I didn't think my brother knew how to drive because he was afraid of being in an automobile because they got blindsided by a um, diesel truck, a big rig in Sequoia Park and pushed off a cliff and got hung up on a tree. And they were all seriously injured in this accident because they were on a, there's still like a 40, 50 foot drop off from where the truck got stuck on a tree. And um, since that time, he never wanted to learn how to drive. Well, when I asked about it and I said something about him not knowing how to drive, my mom said, yeah, he knew how to drive. I said, well, when did he learn how to drive? And, you know, that's something I never knew. She goes, well, he learned from in California that he just didn't want to drive because he was afraid to. So he didn't know how to. He just never bothered getting a license, and he was afraid to drive, I guess. 
but nobody had a car that he would have bought car parts for. So the the way you found out that he bought these the, this car parts is through his checking account. Not actually, you didn't find a receipt. You found something in his checking account, his bank records that said that. Yes. And how much was the amount? I think it was around $104, but I'm not entirely positive. I'd have to do some searching back through the records that I have and see what I what I could find, but I think it was it was over 100. I know that. Still, that's considerable. I mean, of course, car parts, even at your regular auto parts store, they can get a little expensive, and of course, we don't know what he bought or how much of it. We, maybe he bought a bunch of oil. We do, we just don't know, but for somebody who allegedly didn't own a car, it's a little unusual for them to spend a hundred bucks in a car parts store. Yes, it is definitely. And being that you had those bank records, was anything? Did anything else kind of catch your eye? Places he might have spent some money uh, that maybe seemed unusual that you can remember. No other ones that I can remember. And how soon was this? Uh, purchase of these car parts how soon was it to the night that he disappeared i want to say within two weeks but it could have been as long before as a month before long weeks you know as far as time right um, so you're looking at his last bank statement so it'd be like the prior month yeah i'm believing it i believe so it was actually not the bank statement it was his bank register where he writes in the checks he's written because i was using it for handwriting comparison oh okay and that's when I noticed that he had written that in. They bought the parts. So we have some interesting information here. On, on one hand, we have this note that, that may seem like a suicide note, but being that you know Patrick as well as anybody, you kind of maybe interpret it in a different way. Maybe I should ask this. How did your mother interpret that note? Uh, she was still looking for him. She kept thinking he was alive somewhere. You know, she just recently accepted the fact that he's not coming back. You know, and she wants to get closure now. And she'd rather, you know, something rather than nothing. Um, she's finally started to live life again, I guess you could say, a little bit. I guess what I'm asking is, did she see it as a suicide note? No, she didn't. Didn't. Uh, did she view it more like you did, possibly, that he was uh, maybe, frankly, just looking to get away from her and move out on his own? Is that That's was that? she was thinking, yeah, that he just went out and assumed a new identity. Um, I'm, I'm actually the only one who thought it was a suicide at first, aside from some of the officers. Um, and then, like I said, it was after a while when I reread the note, I seen it could be taken more than one way. Yeah. Especially the way that you knew Patrick, especially that yeah. way. Yeah, so it wasn't until after that that you know, I reread it. And, and I actually only saw the note one time, and it was a long time before I ever even got a copy of it. I mean, like maybe 10 years before I got a copy of it and seen it again and was able to um, and viewed it in a different way. So I just kind of assumed the first couple of years that he was a suicide and that we were just waiting to find him. That mom was still looking for a living person, and um, it didn't really dawn on me until I saw that note again that it could be taken more than one way. So we have the note. 
We have, though, on the other hand, we have this uh, purchase that he made not long before he disappeared that he might have had a car that nobody knew about. He might have registered it, possible, without anybody knowing, including you or, or his mother. We just don't know. He did work. You told the listeners that he worked, and being that he was living at home, maybe you got to save a lot of money, could have easily bought a car somewhere without anybody knowing. So we have some, maybe you might call it conflicting information here. Uh, and on top of that, you had mentioned that he loved to read, and you think that this might have played a role in maybe him wanting to pull off some sort of you know disappearing act, let's call it, because you know he did like books with you know plots like that. What can you tell the listeners about that? Oh, he did mention wanting to go find his dad shortly before he disappeared. Um, we had no idea where his dad was. I would think that if he was going to do that, he would have headed towards Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It turns out his dad was in Texas. So um, um, his father hadn't seen him, but after I contacted him, I, I hadn't talked to his dad. And, and you got to remember, this was the only dad I had ever known, too, that um, I grew up knowing. Um, after I contacted him, I was a little bit skeptical that maybe, you know, maybe he helped him get down there and was, you know, hiding him out or something. So we hired a private investigator who actually went down there, met him, got invited to dinner, and uh, came back with a full report saying, you know, Patrick was definitely not there. This is within, you know, the months after he disappeared. And told me that his, my stepdad's, ex-stepdad's wife was pregnant and expecting a baby or had a, had a little boy. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but one of those things were in the report. But him and his wife went to dinner, and his wife was pregnant at the over at my stepdad's house. So he was actually a really good private investigator. So um, we had some closure on that end, so we knew that's where he wasn't. And if he was on his way there, he hadn't gotten there yet. And in the last 20 years, uh, may I ask, is your dad still alive? Um, stepdad, yes. Um, Step. yes. And I actually just went down there and seen him earlier huh. this year. I was just down there in April um, and visited with him. So I've been to his house. Patrick's definitely not there. I met Patrick's half-brother, who is amazingly like him in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, even kind of has the same build and everything, talks like him, um, really smart like uh, Patrick was, or is, um, really nice guy. He's about the same age as my, my son, <laughs> so, mm. but they're not too far apart in age, so Patrick's brother is the same age as my son, his nephew. And nobody... That's our word. And nobody like, uh, with Patrick's description under a, a different name, has appeared in Texas, has tried to contact uh, your stepdad or anything like that? No, nobody has. No. But I did get um, something a few years back. I got in the mail, I got a, like in, at Christmas time, I got a bunch of pictures in the mail of this guy that, he's a local guy, and he looks a lot like my brother, except for he's got like silver hair. And he's got an entirely different personality. He's more flamboyant than my brother ever thought to be. But he is a spitting image of him. And, you know, I kind of did a little bit of checking into that. And everybody says that he's local. He's lived here forever. And, you know, his family's from here. But he looks amazingly like my brother. As a matter of fact, the first time I saw him, I thought it was him with just silver hair. Um, but for some reason, these pictures came in the mail to me. And I don't know why. It just had the address on him, no name or nothing else. And it was just really strange. That is strange. That is strange. 
So it's maybe that maybe Patrick, you know, did feel a bit suicidal. You said he seemed a little depressed before he, he disappeared and he walked off into the snow that night. Maybe he ended up somewhere that the searchers just didn't cover or missed, or maybe he ended up in the river and they didn't check it because they couldn't at the time. And, or maybe he had a car, maybe he walked away being that he was into books and he was very smart. Maybe he had planned a way to, you know, start a new life somewhere under a different name, new identity. Uh, and that's, that's possible. So let's go over some of those characteristics again of Patrick, because I, I although maybe his appearance might change after 20 years, uh, I believe his hobbies and his tastes uh, would not. So let's go over that again. Maybe starting with this eye condition. If somebody 20 years later might have started with that eye condition, what would their condition be now 20 years later if it was Patrick? Um, he would be have no peripheral vision. He wouldn't be able to see out the sides. So if you took your hand and went um, from behind him with both hands and kind of like went forward, he wouldn't be able to see your hand until it was way in front of him. As a cause of tunnel vision um, by and not removable pigments that are attached to the retina and they form and they kind of slowly close in. So if you look through like a um, paper towel roll, that would be about the amount of vision he would have if, a, if he did have that eye disease now. And he'd still, of course, be wearing the sunglasses probably. Yes, and he did wear regular prescription glasses, but very rarely. I think he had astigmatism. So by this point, even if he could drive a car in 1997, maybe 20 years later, he probably wouldn't be able, he wouldn't be able to pass a driving test probably. Uh, he could pass a driving test because the vision that my mom had in the center is very clear. If you're just looking through the machine, it's just you wouldn't be able to see anybody driving up alongside you. You'd have everything would be a blind spot on the sides. Okay, so and everything right in front of him would be clear. Okay, so maybe he would be driving, but I'm hoping as a driver myself that somebody with those that kind of eyesight maybe would be taking public transportation by that time by this time, hopefully. That sounds a little dangerous. Yes. Okay. Okay. So maybe this would be a guy who um, would have some vision problems, maybe taking public transportation. Uh, what was Patrick's height and weight at the time that he disappeared in 1997? That's kind of a toss-up. We're kind of in a disagreement about it. I'm thinking he was close to maybe 5'11", 6 feet. Um, my mom's thinking he was a little bit taller, but I know he was at least probably 5'11". Um, at the time he disappeared, he was probably around 240 pounds. Um, he was, you know, he, he had a belly, you know. Um, even with working out all the time, he still had a belly. Um, he was a big, bigger, bigger um, across the chest. He was like pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of built like a football player a little bit? Yes, thank you. But he had really long legs. <laughs> Longer than normal. He had long legs and no butt. Okay. So if he was 5'11", 6 foot, his legs might have been the length of maybe somebody who was maybe more like 6'4", or something like that. Yeah, or 6'2". Yeah. Okay. 
And we have to go over, once again, this is something that I don't think changes over a, a person's life, especially once they get to their 20s. And I can speak because I'm in my 40s and I still like the same music that I did in my 20s. What kind of music and interest did he have? Once again, can we please go over that again? In books, in music, those things that were interesting to him. Um, uh, he was into, well, he was into knives and swords, um, backpack, backpacking, excuse me. Um, he listened to Mozart, opera, any kind of opera, classical music. Um, he also listened to, like I said, the, the funny comedy things and like Weird Al Yankovic and um, some country. He liked some rock, like ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne. Like them, he liked to read Terry Brooks, um, Terry Brooks, and Anne McCaffrey. Oh, Piers Anthony. Piers Anthony was one of his favorites. Uh, the different series that he has, like the the Blue Adept series, he was really into that one. Um, Stephen King, Dean uh, Dean Koontz, I think it is. Those kind of books were the ones he was into. And on top of that, he had a personality. That was kind of to himself. Yes. I like to just be by himself. He was also, like you said, into into working out. Uh, maybe he was in social situations. He was a little bit awkward. These are all traits that probably that he had when he was in his twenties. That he would might also probably have when he was in his forties. Yes. Yes, definitely. He was a little bit socially awkward, and he tried too hard. Is how it came across to me. Like he was just trying too hard to fit in. So a lot of things he said would kind of fall flat. He just, um, he didn't have, he didn't know when he pushed something too far. You know, um, how most people have, when they're having a conversation with somebody and they touch upon a subject that's kind of touchy, they know when to back off. Patrick didn't have that sense of, that social sense on when to back off of a touchy situation. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does. It, it Sure, it does. Just uh, once again, a little awkward in social situations. Um, maybe has a hard time gauging. I guess the maybe the temperature of the room. Does yeah. not um, aware of maybe how what he's saying is affecting other people sometimes. Yes, definitely, definitely. He was a little bit awkward to say the least on the social situ situations. <laughs> well, I think that. You know, this is all very helpful because these are very distinguishing characteristics. You really start narrowing it down. I think this would be the type of person that would probably stick out to people because of, you know, some of these things. Especially like, you know, how many people love opera? Not many. Opera isn't as popular now as it probably was 100 years ago. Then his eye condition, maybe like to stay for himself, you know. We're painting a picture of a very unique person, and I think that'll be helpful to the listeners. Who knows? A listener uh, might have run into somebody like that, a man, within the last 20 years. And that's what, that's what we're going to hope for uh, in this – for this episode. Now, Patrick had um, – he also had brown hair, but it had red tints in it. It had um, a lot of red highlights in it, and his beard came in with a reddish color to it. He was also a big drinker of Dr. Pepper. He loved Dr. Pepper. And he loved fried eggs, but he liked to fry them too hot so that they had lace on the edges. That's good information, too. Thank you for that. Thank you. Now, you have uh, a couple 
uh, websites or pages on Facebook set up uh, for your brother, why don't you tell the listeners about those right now so they can go to them, they can see pictures of Patrick, maybe uh, read more about him and and anything else that concerns this disappearance case. Okay. Well, there's two different pages. One, you have to request to be a friend on it, but I think most of the information is public. And that's his personal page where I put a lot of his baby pictures and stuff like that on there, as well as a video of some pictures that his dad brought up for me when he came up to visit me. Um, I kind of put together a video of his younger years that's on there. Um, that one is uh, at Facebook.com, and it's um, Missing Patrick Beavers. And the other page is a missing persons page that I put together for Idaho, actually, for mostly southern Idaho. Uh, has other people that are missing other than Patrick, but it has a lot of information on Patrick himself, as well as another relative of ours that has been missing since 1978. And that one's um, Patrick Beaver's Missing Persons, also at Facebook.com. That's right. We had talked about in our prior conversation, you have another family member who disappeared. Why don't you mention her name, uh, maybe a little bit of the circumstances of that, being that I have you on here anyway, maybe we can, listeners can help you with that one as well. I, I think maybe we kind of know what might have happened in that case, but why don't you um, give her name and, you know, the year, the date, and maybe some of the facts on that if you can. Okay, her name is Patty Gay Hogue was her maiden name, and her married name is um, Patty she went by Patty Hogue Tolliver, T-O-L-I-V-A-R. She's missing from Modesto, California, since um, August of 1978. She was um, 45 years old, I believe, at the time she disappeared. She had a husband um, who was later found to have... He actually was um, the chief suspect and several other women who became missing after her, after the fact, um, in the Modesto area. Uh, they said that... Uh, it appeared that he was going to like places like Parents Without Partners and finding single women and talking them into selling their houses, and then he would take their money and murder them. Um, the last time Patty was seen alive was by her sister Shirley um, in 1978. She'd gone to a family reunion, and her husband told her she went to this reunion that he would kill her and her family. And um, she went anyway, and she told everybody at the family about it, and they just thought he was just talking and didn't really pay it too much attention. Two weeks after she got back... Um, her sister went to visit her and, their, and her niece, and they never saw her again after that. Uh, her car was left at the house. Her wallet was there. She never picked up her last check. She was just gone. And um, there's nobody was ever charged with it. Um, everybody just kind of assumed that he killed her. Um, her husband was finally caught because he murdered a woman. Um, I believe her name was, uh, it was Florence Richina. Richina was 49. And she used to be a school teacher in Modesto. He murdered her, and he shot her to death. And then he was found several feet away or 100 feet away, um, bloody footprints leading from the vehicle to him. He had a heart attack, and he had a, a pillowcase full of money that she, this exact amount she just got for selling her house. So um, that kind of closed that one out. But there were still several other missing women from that area that he was the chief suspect in their disappearances as well. Did he die of that heart attack, or did they catch him and put him in jail? He died of the heart attack. So the day that he he murdered his last woman is the day he died as well. Yes. Oh my! So he took a lot of he took a lot of secrets to his grave then. Yeah. 
So um, oh they've never found a body or anything on her. And there's no pictures that I have been able to find myself. And I only came across her doing genealogy. And she's actually a cousin. And um, I kind of went, well, what is this? You know, this says this person's missing. And so I talked to the officer that does the cold cases down in Modesto, Stanislaus County. And he said, yeah, she's still listed with them. Um, and they, he asked me for a picture. I talked to her sister, Shirley, um, who's a cousin. And she's quite up there in years now. And she said, well, her husband killed her. I wouldn't even worry about it. I was like, okay, but, you know, if somebody finds a body, <laughs> you know, you got to, you know, they want to be able to identify it somehow. Um, but uh, I guess the rest of the family just kind of assumes that he killed her and they never bothered looking, I guess. But that was back in 78 when they didn't have a lot of resources either. And that's almost 40 years ago now. Yes. And so why don't you give her name uh, one more time, and then why don't you give the name of the guy, her husband, who probably murdered her as well. Why don't you give those two names out again in case the listeners want to look that up? Okay. Um, it's Patty Hogue Tolliver, H-O-G-U-E dash Tolliver, T-O-L-I-V-A-R. Her middle name was Gay. Her husband's name was James C. Tolliver. Um She's been missing since August of 1978 from Modesto, Stanislaus, California. Okay. And then we also have your brother, Patrick, who's disappeared from Jerome, Idaho, on April 3rd, 1997, so over 20 years ago. And there is reason to believe that he is still alive, so I hope the listeners uh, will keep their eyes peeled for him. Maybe somebody knows something who will come forward. Uh, Sheila, any last words on uh, from you before we finish this episode? Um, not really, just that somebody had to have seen him at least the night that he disappeared. It's kind of hard to walk in a snowstorm and not be seen, you know, um, down, the, down the middle of town where he would have had to walk to get out of town or drive out of town. So somebody somewhere had to have seen him that night, at least, at the very least. But but nobody's come forward, and the police have never talked to anybody. So then, there have been a few leads, um, I guess, in Boise area, where people thought they saw somebody who looked like him. But that could have been the other guy that's here locally. Um, I don't know. When they followed up on him, they didn't find anything. You know, um, but other than that, we haven't heard anything. Okay, Sheila. I appreciate you joining me on this episode of Unfound. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Sheila Van Zant Lewis, sister of Patrick Beavers. I thank her for being on this episode. I also thank her for bringing up the disappearance of Patsy Hogue Tolivar. Maybe that's a case we can cover at some point in greater depth. Lots of curious points in this case. The note... Is it a suicide note, or isn't it? Did Patrick actually encounter the policeman on the bridge or not? All those items saved from 1997 in a kind of time capsule. The new clothes discovered years later. The new camping equipment as well. That $100 purchase at the car parts store, even though he didn't own a car. Very strange. No footprints in the snow, although that might be explained if we knew exactly when Patrick left. Yes, lots of confusing and debatable points. What sticks out to me, though, 
is the talk about Patrick not paying his rent shortly before he disappeared. It was April 3rd, and Patrick still hadn't paid it. I'm taking for granted it was due on April 1st. What that tells me is he knew back in at least late March that he would be disappearing. Not paying his rent is also hard to understand, since it doesn't sound like he had a lot of expenses. Or maybe he spent all his money on those new clothes and that camping gear. Or maybe on a car. Now there's a thought. But there's also that tax return that would have been enough to cover April's rent, but he hadn't mailed it in yet. So the question is, did he not pay his rent because he knew he wouldn't be living many days into April? Or did he not pay his rent because he knew he was moving not many days into April? Hard to say. I'll leave that theorizing up to you. But let's go over Patrick's vitals one more time. He's around six feet tall, about 200 pounds, although after 20 years that could certainly change. He was into opera and classical music and Weird Al Yankovic. He would have considerable vision problems by this time and be wearing sunglasses to protect his eyes from UV rays. He has worked in the casino and convenience store businesses. He is socially awkward but friendly, although he prefers to be alone with his own interests and hobbies. He is highly intelligent, and he likes to read and go camping. If you think you know a man or have known a man like this, please contact myself, Sheila, or the Jerome Police Department. But we have to keep this in mind. Patrick, as an adult, had the right to leave his life if he wanted to. I think all that Sheila and her family want to know is that he is okay. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to Stitcher, Podomatic, and or iTunes and give Unfound a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Unfound.